Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Mark Bubbs and this is season number six. I've got a really inspiring episode for you today. My guest is Jamie Crane Mosey, better known as Mo Crazy, former professional slopestyle free skier who suffered a catastrophic fall at the age of just 22 years old after landing a jump in competition when she was at the absolute peak of her sport in slopestyle skiing. The accident put her in a coma, paralyzed her on one side of her body, and crushed her dreams of making the Olympics. Her incredible recovery is a testament to her will, determination, and support from her medical staff and family. In this episode, Jamie and I discuss her early battles with the girls can't do that prejudice in her sport, the power of visualization for achieving world-class success, and of course, how Jamie's accident changed her life. Jamie will talk about the powerful role her mom had throughout the recovery process. She'll also share some of the recovery modalities she used to recover from concussion, key breathing techniques for dealing with anxiety, and the impact of retirement had on her mood. Of course, Jamie will round things out talking about her incredible foundation and the charity work that she's currently doing all around concussion. Really, really inspiring stuff here from Jamie. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Before we get started, a quick update from Athlete Performance Nutrition. One of the biggest challenges today in performance nutrition is working in a truly integrated model of performance. Sport dietitians, strength coaches, and athletic therapy are busy jobs. And sadly, it leads too many practitioners working in silos throughout the busy competitive year. It's time to change that. Performance nutrition impacts all areas of athlete health and performance. Make a bigger impact with your performance team and athletes and join the football performance nutrition or basketball performance nutrition courses this fall. You'll learn from leading experts in the NCAA, NFL, and NBA, and the holistic model of athlete wellness, performance, and recovery they use to achieve world-class success. You can save 20% off the cost of the courses this fall by using the promo code FALL2022. That's FALL2022. Just head over performancenutritionpodcast.com click on the courses tab to register again that's performancenutritionpodcast.com click on the courses tab to register and level up your evidence-based performance nutrition this fall and connect with the best of the best making a big difference on the field and on the court all right let's get this episode rolling my conversation with jamie mo crazy jamie really appreciate you carving out some time today Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to get going. Well, listen, there's a lot of different areas I want to touch on here today. Um, but I think it'd be great to give everyone who aren't familiar with you just a bit of background on your tremendous athletic career, and then we can go from there. Yeah, so I started doing athletics and gaining the nickname Mo Crazy when <laughs> I was under a year old. So I was always very adventurous. I actually climbed the drapes in my living room and I got stuck at the top and I was like, mommy, come helping me. And she came running out and goes, oh, my little Mo crazy. And wow. that's where that name developed from. And, and now it's my legal last name because it continued throughout my entire life. So I was always doing skiing, gymnastics, soccer, climbing trees, running across the top, 
of everything. Amazing. Um, and then when I was 10 years old, I actually got interviewed because I won state championships in skiing and the same year won state championships in gymnastics and said my sports fantasy was to combine skiing and gymnastics on snow. And at the time, I didn't really know how to do that, but I got introduced to slope style and half pipe skiing, which is slope style is multiple flips and spins yeah. and get judged on your overall impression. And half pipe is half of a tube where you go down and you do tricks and spins and flips. So it's gymnastics on snow. So that's took off pretty quickly and I became a professional and was traveling the world and actually accomplished a lot of great feasts which we can get into in my ski career and then I had a life-changing incident which we will probably touch on as well. Yeah I mean let's let's keep going with the career at the moment just on the athletic side I think a lot of people will be interested obviously interesting that you got into sort of extreme sport but you already had a nickname of Mo Crazy so what in the sport itself, you know, as you're going through that, are you noticing that other athletes have just as much, you know, will to, to push the limits or, or how did you feel yourself stacking up when you first, you know, put, dipped your toe into that new world? Well, one of the things um, throughout my whole childhood and sports related was my mom um, has a master's in psychology and she taught us these mantras, which just growing up with I just thought was kind of typical. So one of the big things was I didn't think you could or could not do something because of, for me specifically, my sex. So I was uh, very feminist from the beginning. Um, I just didn't think that it, it mattered that girls didn't do it, um, which is why I actually became the first woman in the world to flip off of a railing competition and land a double backflip in a competition Incredible. at the X Games because I knew how to perform at my own personal best. And your own personal best does not matter anything besides what your own personal best is day to day. And so I kind of began to understand that my own personal best varied with different days and different activities. Like I'm not good at basketball. Maybe <laughs> you'd get this if you actually saw me and you saw this five foot little girl telling you that, but I've never been good at basketball. I'm not good at the, the shooting with the hand-eye coordination. It's, it's not that great for me. Um, however, I'm really great at balancing. So my own personal best varies between those activities. Mm -hmm. Um, and it also was something that I, I do think, um, there's been a big push in sports, um, a negative push, not that people have been trying to do, but just that girls don't do things. Mm -hmm. And um, even when I was saying, because of my gymnastics background and my ski background, I was like, I'm going to double backflip. They're like, oh, girls in slope style. They were like, girls don't do that. And I literally had people tell me to my face, girls don't do that. And um, crazy. now every girl who made finals at the last Olympics did that. So that's awesome. one of the big things with sports is being told you can't do something and performing at your own best regardless. That is fascinating. I mean, my wife actually, who's British, when she was growing up in grade school, the girls didn't play soccer, crazily enough, we think in England. And uh, yeah, with three daughters at home, it's definitely a, a, a pretty cool thing to be able to make that the new normal for, for girls. They're like, hey, yeah, we can do whatever we want. 
Now, I'm curious, going back to your mom being a psychologist, was she just sort of shaping the environment to develop some of these skills in you, do you think? Or were there sort of some, you know, some exercises or activities or things that she consciously got you to do or to practice as she saw you kind of accelerating your athletic career? Um, so my mom, her psychology basically just shaped the background for my upbringing. Um, so I have to, I owe her a lot of credit for most everything that has to do with my life. And then she would, so it was just the background of what I understood. I didn't yeah. understand that I wasn't supposed to do things because I was a girl. I just thought I was supposed to do whatever I could do. Mm -hmm. um, and then also she would do some practices. Um, so one of the things she taught me when I was younger and I would get really excited and I thought I would get a little scared and suffer competitions to one of the things was to focus on that those nerves that you're feeling in your stomach, they can go either way. It can be excited or it can be nervous. And you can think of it as like a positive or a negative. And you're going to have the nerves. You're going to mm -hmm. have the butterflies. So channel it and focus it into an excited nerves. And one of the ways to do that is to take deep breaths. So that's mm -hmm. something that I've basically spent my whole life before I compete, I would take three deep breaths and I would visualize what I wanted to do. And then I would drop in and go do it or start the gymnastics floor routine. Or so right before I went, I'd always take three deep breaths. Amazing. And on that visualization note, was that something that in practice and things like you hear of different skiers or race car drivers sort of visualizing the entire course and doing that on repeat through a training block or leading up to a competition was that something that you were also doing or was it more even just on that competition day of really just kind of trying to see what you're, you know, the outcome you're looking for? Um, I would visualize quite frequently. Um, I, like I mentioned, I was just brought up with some of these psychological ideas just mm -hmm. as I, I just thought that it was a regular lifestyle. lifestyle every, every kid must be doing it, right? Part of life. Um, but I would, cause I started doing gymnastics when I was young and in gymnastics, you get to a level beyond what the regular individual can do pretty darn quickly. Mm -hmm. And so you're like six years old and you're doing back handsprings. And so starting then I would start visualizing. Um, and sometimes when I was having trouble going to sleep, um, I would just think about, gymnastics or skiing For sure, <laughs> yeah. that was fun things to think about um so i i've always visualized in in practice as well as in competition interesting and you know at that time in terms of things like nutrition you know was that something that was a focus for you as you as you built up your career there and and extreme sport was it something that you know obviously different sports have different cultures so what was that like for you I was always very attentive to nutrition because um, like I've mentioned, my mom, nutrition specialist as well. <laughs> and nice. um, hey. so, she, yeah, she raised me with um, the understanding of how nutrition affects your outcomes. Um, and then so I always paid attention to nutrition and then um, for my ski career and then it was interesting because most of the people I was surrounded with when I became a professional skier pay attention to their nutrition. Mm -hmm. um, it's just 
most people at the top level are focused on their nutrition. However, when we get into the next chapter of my life, most people have no idea how your nutrition affects your outcomes that you experience. Um, so that was really interesting. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, we've you know definitely a topic that we touched on here and, and the podcast. But as you know, as we dive into it, could you share with people, you know, what what was the the incident that that kind of changed your career course and uh, and led you to to what you're doing today, really? Yeah. Well, so I was competing at World Tour Finals, the World Ski and Snowboard Festival, on April 11th, 2015. And I was actually there with my little sister, Jeannie. It was the first time she had ever made world tour finals. So she was wow. very excited and she gave me a hug when I was dropping into my second run. And on my second run, I was in fourth place, which is not on the podium and doesn't okay. count. Yeah. So I had to upgrade and change my off axis backflip to an off axis double backflip. And so on my run, I gave Jeannie a hug and I dropped in and she saw my takeoff, but she couldn't see my landing because of the jump. Yeah. Um, didn't see me hit the next jump, which happens in skiing. And mm -hmm. then she heard the radio crackles life, the ski patrol radio saying, we need all hands on deck and a helicopter on standby. And that's when she knew it was bad. And when she skied down to me, she saw me convulsing in the snow, um, spewing blood, and my eyes were rolled back in my head. And I was airlifted to Vancouver General Hospital, um, where I was wow. in a natural coma for 10 days. And I had eight spots of brain bleeding mm -hmm. and damage to my right brainstem, which paralyzed wow. the right side of my body. So I had a very critical traumatic brain injury. If you look at my statistics, the fancy term is called a third degree diffuse axonal injury. Mm -hmm. And you look at that, it says likely outcomes are death. <laughs> um, so it was, it was a very uh, serious accident. And, um, and I'm very involved. Now I'm on the Utah Brain Injury Council and we have our nonprofit, Mo Crazy Strong, which raises awareness for brain injury as well as peer-to-peer -peer guidance, educated guidance. Because one of the big things about my recovery process, which goes back to my mom's background, she had the idea of, she, she knew of a study that they did mm -hmm. um, about with chimpanzees uh, injuring a paralyzing part of their one side of their body because of brain stem damage and then tying down that side of their body their strong side of their body so they had to utilize the weak side and rebuild those synaptic connections and rewire their brain amazing so she had me do that she would tape down my strong side and make me use my weak side mm -hmm. but the statistics for um regaining mobility after brain stem damage are still so low Be but um she had the understanding to try these different modalities um, and nutrition is a big component. And that was really interesting to me that in the sports side of the sports chapter of my life, um, like I mentioned, most top athletes know you have to pay attention to nutrition now. Maybe not the case some years ago, but now most top athletes mm -hmm. pay attention to nutrition However, most people who have had injuries have no idea that it correlates to your outcome just as much as in sports. 
Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And you know, before we dive into that, if we pause for a minute, just circling back to the incident, I'm just curious, previous to that fall, you know, had you had big falls in the past or had you been sort of quite clean? And, and you know, I'm always interested in that sort of buildup. Like, is that something that you'd experienced before and just never got injured or? I had had some falls before. Um, it's It's interesting because... I've, I've torn my ACL twice, um, in one knee. And, um, that was really challenging because, um, I actually tore it the first time, the very first time I made X games. So I was like this 16 year old girl (laughs) or 17 and, um, couldn't compete for the whole winter. So that was really challenging. Um, and I had had some, I had had two mild concussions before that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, knocked out for just a couple of minutes, um, and then taken away from skiing. And I did some work to recover and things from those concussions. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's very interesting that this injury was so intense because I actually landed the double flip on my feet. So I just under rotated slightly, um, but I caught an edge and whiplash my head onto the snow, Mm. but it was kind of just like a a fluke. I was not known as a very risky skier. Um, I was pushing the limits. um, But before my accident, I had the belief that you could do whatever you wanted to do if you took the steps to get there. Yeah. And it wasn't like this was completely irrational. I'd been doing double flips for a year and a half. I've been doing them on the water ramps. I've been doing them on the trampolines. I probably was perfectly capable of doing it. It just uh, had a fluke and the fluke went as bad as it could go. Almost. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, it is amazing how it's sort of so planned and so purposeful to lead up to all these extreme feats, you know, that you do accomplish. And like you said, you just, you know, that bad luck of just landing in a certain way and, you know, obviously tremendous recovery. So as we get into that side of things, you know, obviously nutrition is a big part of this, you know, maybe first highlight at that 30,000 foot view, what were all the different things that you were doing? And then we can dive in more deeply with, with each one. Yeah. And, and so many of them, um, complement sports and a recovery from a trauma. So if, and, and it's interesting because in a lot of sports, there's a lot of traumas that you can experience. Um, and the biggest thing in my experience is mindset. Mindset makes or breaks your sporting career and mindset makes or breaks your recovery because for you to have the mindset that you can recover opens so many doors. There are so many individuals that um, the doctors or the family caregivers or the therapy programs put brick ceilings on their recovery, um, telling them they can't do it and then they listen and they don't do it. Um, which is similar to sports, telling people you can't do sports. A lot of people listen and then they don't go past that brick ceiling. Um, mm-hmm. And then occasionally you'll get the people who just don't listen <laughs> to what you say. For sure. And um, that was my family and me because um, 
I think very highly of doctors. Uh, my older sister is a doctor. And so I know they go through lots of training and they're very professional and really smart. However, if you tell somebody they're not going to recover back to living independently and they're not going to walk again, even if your purpose to tell their family is so that they're prepared for the worst, mm -hmm. if you still tell that, then you're putting the brick ceilings on people. And I was told that I was never going to live a normal life. And I never yeah. had one to begin with. So you're right. I never got back to living a normal life, but that's <laughs> what well, the life I'm living is not what they were thinking my not normal life was going to be like. And so, yeah, it's a fascinating area because like you said, you know, docs are sort of trying to be respectful of what the statistics say, yet we know all of the science around, yes, setting limitations actually has a, a big effect. And so, you know, your case obviously showing that we've got to really be careful with how we communicate some of these things because that you know setting those brick ceilings as you say really does limit people so how did you you know i know for a lot of athletes after a traumatic injury there's a period where it's really difficult and it's not you know to develop that mindset or get back in that sporting mindset of aiming towards something can take some time after an injury you know for yourself what was that like so when i first so for my injury when I woke up from the coma, I then had serious amnesia. So absolutely no memory day to day. And so then when my mind started to come back, I still didn't really understand what was happening. Mm -hmm. I, I thought I was in a movie about a hospital. I refused okay. to believe yeah. I was in a hospital because only old people or sick people go to hospitals. Yeah. And I wasn't old or sick. And when they poked me with the needles, it didn't hurt. So obviously it wasn't a hospital. <laughs> and they... Uh, had trouble telling me that I was paralyzed. That's why I didn't hurt. And um, so, the, so there's that. I, I, my cognition was affected so much that at the beginning, I, I didn't think I wasn't going back to skiing. Like even yeah. when I left the hospital, I uh, was like, well, I've had blown knees before. I've, I've, yeah. I've gone through things. I'll be back. Um, and it wasn't until that first winter when I realized that I had had to relearn how to walk, ride a bike, which also meant I had to relearn how to ski, which meant I had to relearn every single one of my tricks. And even though it comes back quicker, the second time learning for me, um, I still had to relearn. And when you're learning, you fall a lot. And when you fall, you hit your head a lot. And yeah. my head was a lot more compromised. So I decided to step away from the competitive career and when I made that choice, I actually fell into a depression and I started going to psychotherapy twice a week because it was really hard. I would cry like five times a day. Everything would trigger me. Yeah. And part of that was, as you pointed out, the change in your lifestyle after a trauma. And then also because any form of traumatic brain injury, your emotions are in your brain. And so your emotions are affected. So even mm -hmm. if you have just mild traumatic brain injury, a concussion, or you have multiple, they're beginning to do studies on the NFL and football kind of um, brought attention to that yeah. CTE and mm -hmm. how repetitive concussions can damage your emotional stability. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it really can. So if you are feeling emotionally unstable, there's the chance that it's from repetitive traumatic brain and injuries. Trauma. 
And those you actually fix slightly differently than just an emotional depression because your nerve pathways, you all have trillions of nerve pathways in our brain Mm -hmm. and we have synaptic connections and axons, pathways. And um, when you have a brain injury, it damages, it stretches or rips some of mm. your pathways, your your gray matter, and um, you can reform them and rebuild them. However, rebuilding them will, will take down your depression, not just the emotional portion of your depression, the actual physical, scientific rebuilding of portions of your brain. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. A quick reminder, if you want to stay up to date on when each episode of the Performance Nutrition Podcast drops and receive evidence-based insights every month into your inbox, join the Athlete Performance Nutrition community by signing up at performancenutritionpodcast.com in the black box. That's Athlete Performance Nutrition monthly newsletter. Sign up at the performancenutritionpodcast.com in the black box. All right, let's get back to the conversation. And, you know, I'm fascinated on that sort of mood side of things because that's something we see a lot in, in sport and ice hockey and American football and rugby. Before that, though, that progression, you know, obviously being an athlete, you almost skip over. Like you recovered all the way back from that injury to doing the walking, the jogging, the cycling, and back to actually skiing. What was that? How long did that take? So that portion of my recovery was the most dramatic and visible and actually the easiest. Hmm. Um, it took about, it took under six months for me wow. to return to skiing. We learned how to walk, how to talk. And at six months, insurance said I was fine and I was alive. However, it took a good solid, good portion of like four and a half years after that for my emotions to settle and my cognition to 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 take more steps. So like the, the first mm. steps of relearning how to talk and stuff went very quickly, but then that subliminal cognition yeah. took a while and like being able to receptive, be receptive to body language and understand how to read people with what they're not saying. Mm-hmm. Um, that t- took a while. And those are the invisible deficits. And it's one of the reasons why in the U S Acquired brain injury is our second largest disability. And the cost to society of traumatic brain injury is $76.5 billion annually. Wow. And most people don't know that or really understand it unless they get immediately affected by it. Because and then they say, Oh, I know someone who's had concussions. Like if you if you talk to individuals, most people know someone who's had concussions and know mm-hmm. someone who's had bad side effects from concussions, but they don't realize that there are that many individuals walking around the globe that have brain injuries yeah. because of the invisibility of the deficits. And when we come back to that period of retirement, you know, you mentioned obviously dovetailing with just what you mentioned there with, you know, the emotional side, cognitive side, taking much longer than the physical side. You know, what was that period like in the sense of you talked about some psychotherapy? Yeah, what were some of the strategies there that you you leaned on to help along that pathway to recovery? And, and what was that timeline like? Well, one of the um, strategies that I leaned on in the pathway of recovery 
was finding things that make you happy and you get excited about. Because one of the big things from when you retire from a sport in any way, you feel like you've lost your identity. Mm -hmm. So when I stepped away from skiing, I didn't know what I wanted to do. It's not that quite often they talk to people about setting goals, accomplish goals. You know how to do that as an athlete. The challenge is you don't feel like you have any peaks you want to climb any goals you want to reach you just feel like you're you're done um and so finding ways to challenge yourself again so for me I actually went back to university um and I had taken time off for my ski career and so I hadn't actually graduated my undergraduate degree so I did that and I graduated um but going back and having um the uh, professors actually judge you and you have to perform and you have deadlines and you have mm-hmm. goals that are created and structure um, to perform. So sometimes on finals week, I'm like, did I really want to come back to get great? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait, wait a minute. It's like, I really want that, but I think that's really important. And so even if it's not exactly the same, but like joining a book club or taking an arts class, like maybe you've always wanted to be an artist, but you've never done it because you were pursuing your passion. Well, now you have time to do once a week art classes and, mm-hmm. and do some of those dreams that you've always kind of had on the back burner and just try it or like go to an improv class play the guitar try try things and set set new goals in motion that aren't as big as like what do you want the rest of your career to look like or the rest of your life to look like just what do you want to do tomorrow it's a great you know great strategies and suggestions because it is amazing if we can stay in somewhat the present of what's right in front of us you know, it allows us to, to to sink into the now and find, like you say, that enjoyment. Whereas when we get too far into the distance, even without a retirement, it, it can lead to more anxiety or, or more challenges on that front. So that's really fascinating. I like that idea of being able to explore all these different things that we never had a chance to. I think that's great advice for everybody. And coming back to the nutrition then with the recovery, were there certain elements to your nutrition, whether your diet, supplement strategies, or other interventions that you were leaning on again? To recover? Yeah, for nutrition in my recovery, we really focused on natural whole, whole products. So not um, so much processed. We stick away, stay away from processed. We'd stay away from saturated fats and we'd stay away from sugar, white sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I actually was taken off the feeding tube in the hospital, my older sister um, would bring meals in and she would bring um, more natural food. Yeah. And um, at the beginning of my recovery, I, I'm an adventurous eater, but I needed very, very simple food. Okay. So I could only handle two flavors. So like chicken was just raw chicken, no herbs or anything. Yeah. Now I'm back to having herbs in my chicken. Um, but one of the big things throughout my recovery process was also with nutrition, um, to figure out how to make some comfort food or fallback foods and make some changes in them. So, so one of the changes is like take banana bread, for example. Banana bread is a nice comforting snack yeah. for like making you feel cozy. 
And um, if you take away the white sugar and you put in honey and maybe some molasses or um, you, you change the sweetener, mm-hmm. that makes a huge difference because the way that your brain um, is affected by sugar makes you have yeah. highs, lows, crashes. It, it has nice, slow release. Tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. So just if you change some of your comfort foods, then you can have much different results from it. Like um, you won't have that crash. Um, 100%. Yeah. I mean, we see obviously with people with chronically high blood sugars tend to be much more likely to, to develop dementias and Alzheimer's, which, you know, imaging wise look a lot like what we see with people with, with traumatic brain injuries. So that's, yes. that's a great point. And you know, that was probably earlier days then, but with things like, you know, fish oil supplementation or creatine or some of these other things, was was that really on the radar of the docs or was it really more just like focus on the whole foods and let's get the big rocks on point? Well, was it on the radar of the docs? No. Was it on the radar of my family? Yes. So say, speaking yeah. of fish oil, um, when I was in the feeding tube, so I was, uh, my food was coming from a feeding tube. Mm-hmm. My family asked if they could add fish oil. my feeding tube and the doctor said yes because um we we had to supply the fish oil and it had to be packaged but then they were comfortable um putting it into my feeding tube and those omega-3s and so yes i Mm -hmm. was i took fish oil every day from the time i was in a coma um for my brain injury And, and that was back you said 2015 was it yep yeah Tremendous, tremendous. Yeah. And then another another thing um, just about the sugar mm-hmm. is like my husband, when he grew up, he loved sugar and he loved sweets. <laughs> and um, we both agree that he's kind of trying to wean himself off it a little bit and make some, like I said, the comfort foods, different mm-hmm. decisions. So yeah. like every morning, I'm using him as an example because he was somebody before he ate my banana bread that does not have any white sugar in it. Mm-hmm. He didn't think he could like a dessert that didn't have white sugar and he loves my <laughs> banana bread. So there's no the ceilings foods. again. He just doesn't realize, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, for him with his coffee in the morning, he puts monk fruit in it. Okay. So that's like a yeah. super simple simple it it's granulated white yeah. that looks almost exactly the same and it has a lot of similarities but it has enough differences to sugar that it's better for you and you don't yeah. have the, the same, same glucose response for sure yeah response to it tremendous and you know with those strategies obviously your retirement now you're coming through that you know you're leaning on uh the counseling of the psychotherapy where there's certain again, strategies from a mindset standpoint or how, you know, from a mood standpoint that you were then doing that were different from some of the things that your mom had you doing at the beginning? Like what were some of those um, strategies that you felt were were most impactful for you at that point? Yeah. Well, some of my mindset strategies actually had a lot of similarity from back in my sporting days okay, and then my recovery days, um, taking deep breaths, One of the things that I have been doing since I was a child, I have been doing yoga and meditation since I was a child. Mm -hmm. However, I really started focusing on it more after my accident. So um, we also used this device and this, I was introduced to it actually after my accident, it's called a Beamer, B-E-M-E-R. 
Mm -hmm. And um, it increases the oxygen flow throughout your body. And when I was feeling stressed or having a a trigger point um, after my TBI, uh, I would go lie down on it and you lie on it for eight minutes. um, And kind of the duality of calming my mind down and then also increasing the oxygen flow throughout my body would make it so then afterwards I could articulate what was actually troubling me instead of just having an outburst or a meltdown. Interesting. Um, so that was a, a big, a big one. The, the calming down when I was getting triggers by going to lie on the Beamer mat. Um, and then, like I mentioned earlier, just finding new goals and dreams to set that really helped with the mentality. And then even further along when I, um, started stepping into this, um, brain injury world and motivational speaking. Um, and one of the things I love about motivational speaking is like performing in sports Mm-hmm. You have a time and you're on stage and everyone's looking at you and you're performing. And I, and I love that adrenaline rush. So finding ways to still have that adrenaline rush can be helpful. Um, yeah, because finding that adrenaline rush. However, um, I also would get overwhelmed and stressed out with my recovery. And I actually got even more overwhelmed and stressed out than I did before my brain injury because I was still dealing with the emotional deficits from it and it took years of dealing with it. Um, But just keeping myself calm. So meditation and um, focusing on, you mentioned nutrition, but nutrition also affects your mood. So if you're feeling stressed out, calming or finding different ways to get yourself to calm down. That's tremendous. And were there certain types of breathing techniques that you like to use? I mean, I know there's different, whether it's a certain amount of inhalations in or out, or did it depend on, you know, how you're feeling or just a nice consistent deep breaths? It depends a little bit on how I'm feeling, but mm-hmm. it's mostly just really slow, deep breaths. So like mm-hmm. in, in through your nose really slowly and then out through your mouth really yeah. slowly. Um, so but getting those breaths down to like six, five per minute type thing. Nice long inhales and exhales, I imagine, right? Yeah. And that would happen when I'm lying on the beamer and I'd close my eyes and just those deep breaths. Um, That's tremendous. There's actually a study recently came out in France showing that anesthetologists have been able to reduce pain in their patients with just having them do some breath work and focus on other things versus the pain. They can actually influence the amount of pain they're feeling, which is amazing when the science sort of catches up to what a lot of people athletes practitioners are doing you know in in the field in the trenches you know if we pivot back to your career as a motivational speaker i'm curious there's so many layers to your story you know what are some of the aspects that people really resonate with or come back to you you know to say that it really impacted them yeah there are a lot of layers and so some of the things that people say resonate the most with them um, is one is that ability to climb an alternative peak. So I explained about how I was climbing up the mountain of life and I was pretty high up the mountain of life <laughs> and I got caught in a metaphorical avalanche that slid me down to the bottom. And then I had the choice to stay stuck at the bottom or start to climb an alternative peak. So having like that belief. So that's mm. something that resonates with people. 
after hearing my story, believing that yeah. they can, all the troubles that they're facing, because everybody has struggles and challenges in their life. And for it's you, great metaphors. Really I was going to say it's a great metaphor with the visual of it as well, isn't it? It's just that people can see climbing a peak, coming down, like you mentioned, the avalanche and having to go back up again, really powerful. Yeah. What yeah. else? What else do you often hear? So the, um, another one is um, the invisible struggles. So most people have challenges in their life that they feel like they can't recognize as much or other people don't understand because nobody else sees. And so whenever I give a presentation, I always have multiple people come up to me and, and talk about their invisible struggles that they're facing. And so the fact that you can recognize invisible struggles because that's one of the big things um like with, with a tbi like recognizing it acknowledging mm -hmm. it and then fixing it and then taking the steps to figure out how to fix it um and so i imagine that is a very popular one because it's amazing you know obviously working with a lot of groups across different walks of life, people who are seemingly highly successful athletes, everybody in between. And we all oftentimes think that certain people don't have any challenges or, or things that they're working on, but you know, it, everyone has their own internal challenges that they have got to deal with. And so it, I, I would think that, yeah, when you speak, I mean, you're covering so many elements that that would definitely be something that, uh, that hits them. If we pivot here a little bit, Jamie, and talk about, you know, your your foundation, you know, what are some of the things and obviously getting deeper into concussion awareness and support? You know, what are some of the things that have, you know, surprised you with some of the research that you're seeing or and and what are some of the, the initiatives that you guys have uh, that you're on board this year and into the future? I'd love to talk about that. So. One of the interesting things is I'm actually um, studying for my certified brain injury specialist, um, which my book's just right next to me. So I'll just. <laughs> nice, fantastic. Um, it's, it's, it's this textbook. Nice. Um, and one of the interesting things just for me personally about studying it is um, how many little things like um, there's has not been a lot of research on the neuroplasticity um, with living humans. However, mm -hmm. like I mentioned with, with monkeys, they did a research where they tied down their arms to regain their mobility after brainstem damage. Yep. And my mom had read that. So I'm like, oh, that's me. <laughs> I'm the monkey. <laughs> nice. so that's been just on a personal level, kind of a fun thing. Um, but one of the things that's challenging for brain injury in general, um, pretty much globally, is that there's not tons of communication from different um, resources and, yeah. and outcomes. So once you get to the level where you are alive and you've gone through that stage, so like my outpatient therapy and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so I heal from occupational, physical, speech therapy. Insurance stops covering you and you don't really you know go. where to go. And for a brain injury, there's still a lot of healing um, beyond that to make it alive to thrive so you can contribute back to society and live a life you love. And there's not really avenues that you know where to go to 
Mm-hmm. So that's just one of the big things that we're working on with Mo Crazy Strong about raising awareness is just um, like I mentioned in the interview, since there are so many invisible challenges that you're facing. So most people, when they've had a brain injury, they forget about it and they might develop problems from it, but they mm-hmm. don't really associate or link the two together. And there's ways to, to fix most mild concussions. You can fix everything from it. However, if you don't know you had it and you don't acknowledge it and you don't fix it, it'll just stay permanent and keep creating like downward spirals um, yeah. for individuals. So raising awareness, I like to give this example. Um, if an adult is going to work and they slip on the ice and hit their head, and they maybe black out for a second and then they shake it off and go to work and they have a presentation and they forget half of it. And then yeah. their boss is talking to them about it and they start behaving irrationally to their boss. And then they end up getting fired. <laughs> the whole thing could have been fixed if the employee hadn't been able to tell their boss that they had a brain injury and yeah. their boss had known instead of just, Oh, well, shake it off. Like, yeah, um, come on now, let's get to it. Just, just, you know, be like, okay, well let's have the other employee who is going to partner with you or let's see if we can push the presentation a week or something as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Um, or w- would just make it so that you just avoided the whole problem. <laughs> And so the awareness factor definitely needs a lot of attention. So that's part of what we do with our um, PR team. We just recently were in the New York Times. We're always trying to just like be a voice for the invisible struggle. Um, And then also specifically, Mo Crazy offers educated peer-to-peer guidance for traumatic brain injury survivors and family caregivers. Because there's a lot of family caregivers who want the best for their family member. Mm-hmm. Um, and by family member, that does not mean it has to be blood fa- blood family members. Yeah, um, but whoever you're caring for, you want the best for them, but you don't know how to. And there's no education teaching you what to do. Um, so if you could be a different, uh, same situation, paralyzed on the right side of my body, and been like, when I couldn't hold a glass without my hand shaking, be mm. like, okay, well, Jamie, hold it in your left, hold it in your other hand, just move it over. That's fine. Like, yeah. In the short term, that might seem like you're helping me more. But then in the long term, I might, I never would have recovered. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. So the education portion of that, my, my mom's a PhD candidate trying to tie all of her learnings uh, mm. together. <laughs> Um, with a focus on traumatic brain injury. And so we're trying to make sure that the peer-to-peer guidance comes from individuals who've experienced it. So we can bond with them. Like my mom was talking with a family caregiver who almost lost her daughter and then her daughter had a great recovery, but from a traumatic brain injury. And they were talking about that moment when they both heard the call and they're both crying about it because they both know what that's like. Yeah. However, it's, it's also educated. So like the advice that we give and the strategies that we give have been peer reviewed and backed by science and mm-hmm. our educated advice. It's tremendous. I mean, it's yeah, such a great combination of, like you say, the, that experience side of people who've been through it with the evidence-based science to be able to support people because this is 
as you alluded to, it's, it's a huge issue and concern and, and working in sport. Again, we see it a lot and while things are slowly moving in the right direction, there's still a lot of things that need to be covered. And so it's really awesome to see, you know, the work that you guys are doing, where can people stay connected with you and, and get in touch with, with the, uh, with the charity and, and up to date on all the things that you're doing. Yeah. Well, so if you search us www.mocrazystrong.org um, you can find our website and then you can also email me at info at mocrazystrong.org and that's the easiest way to get in touch with me info at mocrazystrong.org and then you can also follow along on Instagram if you would like Jamie Mo Crazy and see some of my stories and adventures because I might be a retired professional, but I have not <laughs> nice. retired from life. Amazing. Amazing. Well, listen, we'll definitely include those all those links in the show notes. And I really appreciate you, Jamie, taking the time out to, to share your story and, and all the inspirational, you know, recovery and, and things that you're doing is really is uh tremendous. So thanks again for the time and uh yeah, looking forward to keeping up with all the things that you're doing. Well, thanks for having me on here and I'm happy to share. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. To watch the full video interview and short clips from this episode, check out our YouTube channel, Performance Nutrition Podcast. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. All that good stuff. It's a massive help for the show. Until next time, take care. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.